welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Welcome back. Thanks. But you had kind of a not-so-great experience driving back. Yeah, it was. I had a vacation was great. Saw, uh, saw a lot of family, got to swim at the beach. All of that was very cool. And then driving back, I honestly, I do not think this has ever happened to me before, John. Mm-hmm. I, maybe once in my life. But on the trip down there and the trip back, I hit uh, three gas stations that were out of gas. Crazy. All in Southern Virginia. And I have to say, if I'm being totally honest, I think it was two that were totally out of gas and one that only had premium. But right. it's not, they weren't closed. They had just run out of gasoline to sell. And it's, it is unsettling. You know what I mean? Like we yeah. live in a country where you, you can get, you know, you, you can get lots of whatever you want at almost any time. Yeah. Unless, of course, right. it's like customer service or, or dignity or, you know what I mean? Like fair treatment. Um, <laughs> but man, if you want like eight gallons of Pepsi at 2 a.m., you can, you can have that. And so there, I don't know if this is just a fluke. I don't know if this is like a new reality of, of minor inconvenience on the weekend sometime, right. or if this is like the be- the beginning of something, right? Like the beginning of a, a change, a real change in, in our way of life. It was, I don't know. It's, I it, it's a, it was a small matter, right? I just drove another 20 yeah. miles down the road and went and to a different gas. town and got gasoline, but there was something kind of unsettling about uh, about seeing a shortage of something this important. Yeah. Uh, and more than once. I went to Baltimore for dinner last night with a friend and um, uh, went to Greek Town, what's left of Greek Town on Eastern Avenue. It's kind of a, a lower middle class in semi-industrialized area, but that's where the Greek restaurants are and the Greek church and the Greek community center and all that stuff. But anyway, there's a there's a gas station there um, right on the main street and gas was three eighty five a gallon. I didn't even really need much gas, but I filled up just because it was three eighty five. Everywhere else was between like four oh seven and I saw it as high as four fifty six. But um, I didn't see any places that were out of gas. I hope this is a fluke. Mm-hmm. I hope that it was just some weird thing where. You know, they missed their their truck didn't come or whatever. I hope this isn't something of a national trend. Hey, I've got a national trend for you. Mm. That should be a dirty joke, but it's not. I was just I was going to mention some of the topics we're going to talk about over the course of the show. And one of them we'll get into that list in a minute. But one of them is this FBI raid on Friday at uh, places in St. Petersburg, Florida and St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, the Uhuru Solidarity Movement House. And I, I was going to Google because I couldn't remember if it was a raid on the oh, African no. People's Socialist Party or the African Socialist People's But You know what I mean? Yeah, I wanted to get right. my word order right. Guess guess what I, I, warning I got? Unbelievable. Looks like the results below are changing quickly. So it's popping up all the time now. I don't like it one bit. Nope. And so this, of course, we are going to talk about this later. Uh, what does it mean to have the FBI, you know, raiding the headquarters of this party and uh, related uh, solidarity movement and, you know, what we should make of what I think is a pretty clear uh, 
concern, I'm going to say an anxiety on the part of the federal government that uh, it is our treatment of minorities in this country that is America's soft underbelly. And so, you know, now these groups of people are are vulnerable to exploitation by our enemies. And so uh, I guess we should scrutinize these groups even further. And that's what the headlines are. The headlines are all variations of FBI raid in St. Louis for Russian propaganda crackdown. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, it's yeah. it's a fascinating and very creepy story. But of course, you remember it was uh, you know in the early days of RussiaGate, yeah. it was also like oh no, they're they're targeting African Americans mm-hmm. who have some justifiable grievances, but then are going to be susceptible to the the wiles of the Ruskies. Right, you because know, they're so the- stupid. Yeah, they'll be taken in by a, a meme of a cat, or there's no legitimate reason to right. be you know disdainful of American politics or looking for some other you know some other way, right? Yeah, right. That's going to be a fun conversation. I think we're also going to talk about a couple of um. Revelations involving the African continent, one about uh, the U.S. unreported U.S. role in a Nigerian airstrike that killed dozens of civilians. And also take a look at Europe's proposed new strategy for approaching African governments, which is to tie aid levels to support for uh, quote unquote Western values, which you can read uh, our side in the war in Ukraine. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. We're, of course, going to talk about Nancy Pelosi's trip to Singapore and what seems to be a pretty certain visit to Taiwan now. At least we've had a lot of CNN is reporting it. I think there's a lot of yeah. sighting of a Taiwanese news channel that said, yeah, she's coming. She's coming and spending tomorrow the night. night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to get into that. We're going to take a look at the Iran deal. As it stands, whether both sides ever had any real intention of of getting to a deal. We're going to talk about some of the political turmoil in Iraq and uh, and what that means. I had a couple of uh, domestic stories that I thought were worth a mention. Monkeypox. You know, we we talked briefly about monkeypox last week um, because all of a sudden big city mayors are declaring it to be a, a health crisis. A state of emergency in the state of New York now. Yeah. New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, Washington. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we we also run the risk of turning this into a gay disease Mm -hmm. like like we did with HIV and AIDS in the 1980s. It's it's dangerous. Yeah. And we also had, I think, over the weekend, Spain and Brazil reporting one death each, which were they would be the first monkeypox deaths yeah. outside of Africa right. that have been known. I think the fellow in Brazil was someone who had, he had a weakened immune system. He had other health problems going on. I don't think Spain has given any details about those deaths, but you know, I mean, monkeypox, not very, not very likely to kill you, uh, no. but it's not impossible. No. And, you know, again, a, just a bad thing to have running rampant through your society. If it can be avoided. Nothing else to worry about right exactly. now. You know, yeah. if you don't mind, I want to go back to something you said a moment ago about this FBI thing, this FBI raid. I, I'm looking at this local um, Fox Channel 2 St. Uh, Louis uh, report, and they said that the FBI conducted this raid at five o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. It said they they threw flashbang grenades into the home mm-hmm. to startle the people inside. They were made to come out with their hands up 
They were handcuffed. This is just the man and his wife were handcuffed and waited outside while federal officers searched the house. The house was then ransacked and computer equipment was removed. Yeah. In the United States of America. Yeah. At five o'clock in the morning. For allegedly getting some funding. Right. You know, I mean, they're yeah. denying the the, organi- the organizers I've seen have denied that they got any funding from the Russian government. Yeah, they also have been it. unrepentant, which I really appreciate. They're saying, you know, we can we can be friends with whoever we want to be friends with. It's don't free tell country. Us, don't tell us we can't have friends that be, you don't like. And we can right. partner with anyone who we think is going to facilitate the revolution that we want. Boy, this is infuriating. It's a wild story, but you got to wait until one thirty to talk about it, John, or maybe one twenty. And you know what the what the uh, accusation is? The accusation is um, failure to register as a foreign agent. Well, here's my question, because they're also talking about election interference. Did someone get that 10 million? Exactly. Someone get that 10 million for this tip off? Right. I hope not. Um, I want to point out something real quick. Remember uh, Henry Cuellar? Sure. Right. The good old Henry Cuellar, the most conservative Democrat in the House of Representatives. Mm Anti-abortion, et cetera, et cetera. You had Nancy Pelosi flying out to help him campaign to ensure that he beat his progressive challenger. And he did it by the skin of his teeth. He sure did. And now we are lucky enough to have him introducing legislation with two Republican co-sponsors that would amend U.S. labor law to establish a new classification for gig workers, denying them a right to minimum wage and other employment protections. So Cuellar's Worker Flexibility and Choice Act, he says, is important to ensure that our gig economy has the room and resources to expand. Yeah, that gig economy that likes to pay you, you know, $1.75 an hour because they nickel and I I talked to an Uber driver in South Carolina who just, you know, tells you what what we all know, that all all of this gig work, you know, they say you're going to make X amount and they leave out all mm-hmm. of the all of the different things uh-huh. they attempt to charge you for and assign fees for and illegally yes. uh, uh, make you pay for. But no, uh, what Henry Cuellar would like to do is uh, call for workers to be subject to worker flexibility agreements um, to have some rights guaranteed to employees like privacy, non-discrimination, mm-hmm. non-harassment or whatever, but no wage and hour protections. Uh, and this law would supersede all federal, state and local laws or wages for workers. So if you attempted like they did in California to classify uh, gig workers as employees and make these companies that make so much money, pay them benefits, pay them overtime, you know, give them the benefits that you are by law entitled to give your employees. Oh, no, you have a law that's going to supersede that courtesy of Henry Cuellar, who was ushered into this position by the leadership of the Democratic Party. Nice. Beautiful. Nice. Really beautiful. Yeah. You know, I, I mentioned to uh, to our producer, Ray, that I spoke with uh, former Governor Jesse Ventura on Friday. I was on his uh, Substack show. And he asked me at the end of the show, after we had finished, if uh, I had heard about this new party, this new forward party. Oh, yeah. And how excited he was about it. He's friends with Christine Todd Whitman, the former governor of New Jersey. He's going to join this party and et cetera, et cetera. And I said, no, I I wasn't interested in this new party because it's supposed to be in the middle between the Democrats and the Republicans. And that's with the the uh, belief that the Democrats are somehow a left wing party. Yeah. Well, they're clearly not a left wing party. And this proves it. Yeah. This proves it. So, no, we don't need another right of center party. At all. No. 
I don't think so. There are a lot of people who are excited about it because they think Andrew Yang to to a lot of people because he was sort of his presentation was very authentic. Mm -hmm. He seemed forthright. He has some correct diagnoses of American problems. Yes. Things that he was initially in support of that I think he's dropped like the UBI. People liked that. And I understand why. Right. And he does sort of present himself as someone who is is uh, has new ideas and is willing to think about things in new ways. And they're right to want that. I just think in the end, what, what he has done has not demonstrated any of that. Um, and so, you know, I sympathize with people who are excited about it. And, you know, would would that it were a, a new party with some new ideas and, and new proposals? I mean, I think there are parties on the left that have ideas and proposals exactly. I would like to see enacted. But, exactly. You know, I mean, I don't think people are wrong to be dissatisfied. Uh, it's just a shame that these people are sort of coming up, presenting, presenting these solutions that don't really, that aren't what we need. Um, Agreed. Man, this flooding in Kentucky, John. Wow. So at least 30 dead so far, or 30 confirmed dead. But yeah. Governor Bashir said this morning that there are still hundreds of people missing. Yeah. I saw an interview over the weekend with a homeowner who um, who recognized how quickly the, the water was rising. And so he started running from door to door um, to his neighbor's houses, telling them to get out, get out of their houses. He happened to have a boat in his garage and he was able to hop in the boat. The water entered the garage and lifted the boat Uh, up and he was able to begin rescuing some of his neighbors. Yeah. Uh, But that was the exception. It's just to what happened. Yeah. Hundreds of people missing, more rain forecast today. As uh, Andy Bashir and others have said, you know, a lot of the people who've seen their communities just destroyed uh, destroyed, are people who didn't have very much anyway, you know? And so, yeah, it is, it's hard to know, you know, exactly what to say in the midst of natural disasters like this, other than it, it, it's awful to contemplate. You wonder, you know, you wonder how much of this death could have been prevented had these people had a little bit more, a little bit more money, slightly better living structures, et cetera. A lot of the people who've died seem to have been elderly, you know, which is not to say you can you you can't avert the cost of every natural disaster, right? I'm not suggesting sure. if they were living in McMansions in, uh, no, in these alleys. No, but what if the government had spent more money on flood aversion uh, programs, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is what, what we I were mean, told. I mean, all these big expensive, expensive beach houses on Myrtle Beach are up on stilts. Somebody paid for that. You bet. Yeah, yeah. You bet. Um. I have a little, I have a little bit to say about Bank of America, but I know we have our next guest waiting, so I think uh, maybe we'll save it. We'll we'll save this little treat for you for later in the show, guys. Bank good. of America and Tim Hortons, which is sort of one of one of the funny stories of the weekend. Uh, so we'll move on and we'll get into some of the big foreign policy news of the day. I think we're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Tensions between Serbia and Kosovo have worsened over the past several days. The origin of the problem is innocuous enough. 
Kosovar authorities are demanding that ethnic Serbs get license plates from Kosovo rather than from Serbia. But Serbia doesn't recognize Kosovo as a country. Since the 1998-1999 war, the license plates for ethnic Serbs have been issued by Serbia. The Kosovo government, at the request of Secretary of State Tony Blinken, has agreed to delay its license plate decision by a month. I can't believe we're even talking about something like this, where the license plates are issued. In other news, Russian authorities continue to accuse Ukrainians of bombing a prisoner of war facility that resulted in the deaths of dozens of prisoners. And now Ukrainian authorities are accusing Russians of capturing a Ukrainian soldier, castrating him, shooting him in the head and dragging his body through the streets. Human rights will likely be a serious topic in any post-war era. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi arrived in Singapore on her Asia trip. She will reportedly, as we mentioned to you, go to Taiwan tomorrow over the objection of myriad interests. What she hopes to accomplish by doing that remains unclear, at least to me. We're joined by Dr. Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action magazine and author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Always good to have you. Hey, this Kosovo flare-up is more serious than the media might have us believe. Kosovo won its independence from Serbia. It was part of the former Yugoslavia uh, back in 1999. It was Europe's last war until the Ukraine conflict. NATO came in on the side of Kosovo. Russia came in on the side of Serbia. There's been this tenuous peace ever since. Why would the Kosovar government upset the apple cart with this odd demand for new license plates? What's the point of this? Well, I'm I'm not sure exactly what's behind the decision, but I think it you know points to a deeper problem that this you know the settlement uh, there you know from remnant from the U.S. NATO war, the very uneasy settlement, and the tensions are you know still very sharp between the yeah. uh, Kosovar Albanians and the Serbs, and the war really did not resolve the problem there. It just basically empowered the Kosovar Albanians over the Serbs who have you know historical attachment to. Kosovo. Uh, mm-hmm. For them, it's kind of like their Jerusalem. It is. Uh, so it really, it was just like it's it's a very bad situation that's going to boil over at some point, whether it's this license issue or something else. And yeah, the you know, uh, I mean, looking back, that war was billed as this great you know humanitarian intervention, and the Serbs were the bad guys. But I mean, it's really a complex uh, conflict, and I mean, there are grievances on both sides against the other side, with some legitimacy on on both sides. Uh, and you know, when the U.S. plays the world policeman, it just it doesn't you know create a viable solution. It has its own agenda, which was to advance NATO to establish mm-hmm. military bases. Uh, they want to pry. You know, the, the current Kosovo prime minister is saying we we should be part of the EU, and he wants to join the EU. And you know Serbia, as we know, is tied to Russia, so it's just you know playing out as part of this larger Cold War conflict as well. And, uh, yeah, again, I think it points to the problem of the U.S. trying to play the role of world policeman. It just doesn't work. It, 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 it inflames these conflicts and, and never creates solutions, a workable solution. I mean, there was a workable solution for years when they were within Yugoslavia. That's right. And the problem, you know, when the Yugoslav Federation broke up, uh, created all these problems that have not been resolved yet. You know, I was serving in Athens when this war broke out, and uh, 
And it was a low point. It was a post-World War II low point in relations between the United States and Greece. Now, Greece is an officially Orthodox country. Serbia is an officially Orthodox country. And as you said correctly, uh, Kosovo is like the Jerusalem of, of Serbia. It's where most of the Serbian Orthodox Church's monasteries are. Uh, there are churches there that go back far more than a thousand years. And then all of a sudden, it's taken over by Albanian Muslims uh, with the support of the Turks. And so it's been kind of a mystery to me how the various powers in the region have been able to maintain this uneasy peace for the last 20 plus years. To me, it was just a matter of time before something gave. I just can't believe that that it's over this silly license plate situation. It's just crazy to me. Yeah, I think uh, you summed it up very well. Yeah, and uh, it's just yeah. I mean, it's 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 going to boil over at some point, and it just takes one small issue sometimes yeah. to trigger these kind of things. And you know, we're seeing a very unstable period. You know, with the Ukraine conflict and the rising you know tension between the major powers, uh, and, and Cold War is also mm-hmm. uh, leading to conflicts at a regional, local level. So let me ask you about that. Uh, this license plate decision was only delayed by a month. They said, okay, we're not going to implement the license plate thing now. We'll do it 30 days from now. In the meantime, last week, Tony Blinken spoke with, uh, uh, with Kosovar officials. Um, so what do you expect the next steps to be? Is this going to result in a fight? Are the, are the Serbs going to have to move against the, the Kosovars? I mean, I hope not, but unfortunately, the pattern of U.S. you know diplomacy hasn't been very good in, in in creating you know durable solutions to these kind of problems. And there's been a you know bias and hostility toward the Serbs going back to that era, uh, in part because uh, the Serbs had been trying to keep together the Yugoslav you know federation, and were you know more more you know more. Independent, you know, of the United States and and more allied with Russia. So there there is a, a longstanding bias against the Serbs uh, that augurs poorly for a workable diplomatic solution to this uh, situation. And I mean, the Kosovo state, from what I know, has been a very you know, huge levels of corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, for years it was dominated by the Kosovo Liberation Army, which had been branded as a terrorist uh, army by the State Department. And it was tied with you know Albanian mafia, mm-hmm. and I know Kosovo has had a very bad economy since its independence, and had been you know overrun by the mafia. And this current prime minister, I think, is trying to uh, claims at least to be fighting corruption, but so I mean it hadn't really been a functioning state since its formation in in 2008. So yeah, you know the U.S. I mean it's been kind of proxy of the U.S. and the U.S. has you know military base uh, that they've been trying to preserve, uh, but how long this can last the way it is, I, I really don't know. Yeah, that's the issue right there. One of the things that hasn't been discussed really since the start of the Ukraine war, Jeremy, is human rights. Uh, there are credible reports of human rights violations on both sides of this war. And, you know, these things happen in war, but they're still illegal. How do you expect this to end? Do you think that once the, the war is over, there will be tribunals? Will the two sides just walk away? 
Um, and what about internationally? Will, will the United Nations or other international human rights bodies get involved? Well, it's become very politicized. You know, each side is always accusing the other. It's very hard to determine the truth in a lot of these cases, what exactly happened. Uh, in some cases, uh, it's been apparent that Russia was blamed for something they couldn't have done, uh, like they were accused of, of bombing a crowded mall recently, right. Right. Uh, and there were no cars in the parking lot. and. You know, people who looked into it saw, and even the video Ukraine released had the uh, attack coming, you know, near near the mall and caused ultimately a fire where the, there had been a, a machine plant that may have manufactured munitions. So, uh, you know, and then the Dubuka incident was the U, Russia was accused of genocide, but uh, the evidence uh, looked like uh, a lot of the atrocities were committed uh, after the Russians left. Uh, so. You know, this is the pattern we've seen. Yeah, it's very, very politicized, and I wouldn't expect that to change. You know, after the war, and unfortunately, the the you know UN international community have often been biased against Russia. Uh, so, you know, I mean, many accuse, like going back to the, the Kosovo and Yugoslav conflict, many accuse the uh, uh, International Criminal Court of being like a show trial, because mm -hmm. most of the people put on trial were, were the Serb, you know, and Serb uh, leader Milosevic was accused of genocide. Mm -hmm. uh, he was put up before the trial. But, you know, in that conflict, I mean, the Croats had committed the largest act of ethnic cleansing in the Operation Storm, uh, and they were, you know, not tried. There were few, I think, Croats tried, but it was mostly targeting the Serbs. So, and it was part of a regime change operation, you know, to remove Milosevic, yes. which the U.S. government was behind. So we may continue to see this politicization of human rights, and once it's politicized, you know, the, the truth often gets obscured. And I agree, both sides have committed war crimes. Hopefully it would be an, an independent tribunal that, that would try, you know, that, that would just seek to be objective. But the pattern we've seen is very politicized. Uh, the, the issue of human rights and war crime become politicized and tied to political agendas. Mm -hmm. And that leads to miscarriages of justice. Indeed, that happens all the time. Jeremy, the first shipment of Ukrainian grain left port today and is on its way to the uh, to the Mediterranean. Is this a one-off, or do you expect this deal between Russia and Ukraine to hold? Will we see ongoing grain shipments? I hope so. I mean, I think people realize, you know, both countries realize, and, and I think the world, that, you know, the, both Ukraine and Russia are very vi vital to the world economy, and there's a concern about food shortages. So it's almost a necessity uh, that this continues, and I hope it would. And maybe this could present an opening for, for larger diplomatic arrangement and cooperation uh, in resolving the conflict ultimately between Russia and Ukraine. That would be a hope. We had uh, Peter Kuzmarov on the show on Friday, and he talked about his hopes. Who's Nick? Yeah, of course. Plus, I've obviously. Thank you. You're welcome. You're Thank welcome. you, P Peter Kuznick. You <laughs> Sorry, had your brother, Jeremy. Jeremy. <laughs> we had Peter Kuznick on the show on Friday, and um, and he he talked at length about his hopes for a diplomatic uh, solution. He acknowledged, of course, that there are no talks ongoing and there are no plans for talks. But he said that, you know, this is how these things always end up, that th there are secret talks or there are brokered talks, and certainly the Turks keep offering to to host talks. Do you see anything like that on the horizon, uh, Jeremy? Uh, I, I, 
I want to be um, optimistic. I think most people want to be optimistic, but I'm not really seeing a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Yeah, I mean, I'm not too optimistic either myself because I think you know, uh, in Russia's case, I mean, I think they are making you know, they see themselves maybe as uh, the war as having been successful. I mean, they've taken over a lot of territory in eastern Ukraine. Now there's going to be a referendum, right? Uh, whether those will be open or not, it's likely the people are going to vote to rejoin Russia. Uh, so they may see the war as going very well. They've been able to withstand the sanctions, uh, and Putin popularity ratings, from my understanding, are uh, strong. Very high. And yep. on the Ukraine side, they may feel the, the Western aid is sustaining them, and that may give them a feeling of strength or, or invincibility, uh, which is kind of a loser on their side, but they it gives them the reason to keep fighting on. Uh, and then the U.S. may may be trying to block uh, a diplomatic solution. They may have their own agenda, uh, which is, uh, I mean, I think their strategy was to try and uh, bog the Russians down in a quagmire and uh, undermine the Russian economy and eventually uh, uh, facilitate you know, unrest against Putin. So they may be doubling down on that strategy. Mm-hmm. So uh, they may be, you know, the Zelensky government is heavily dependent on U.S. support. Uh, and so if the U.S. is discouraging or trying to block a diplomatic uh, solution, then then there won't be one. Yeah, then there won't be one. Let's talk for a minute about um, about Nancy Pelosi in this trip to Asia. President Biden has expressed his displeasure with the trip and has said that the Defense Department opposes it. But what he hasn't said is that any congressional trip uh, requires country clearance something called country clearance from the senior U.S. diplomat in country. So what you do is if you're a congressional staff member or a State Department or Commerce Department officer or anybody, anybody who wants to go to a foreign country, you have to send a cable to the senior State Department officer in country and ask for country clearance. That's permission to enter the country. Um, You have to get permission from the relevant State Department desk to enter the country. So the White House is saying one thing, that, oh, they don't like this trip, and it's going to be complicating, and DOD doesn't like this trip. But then behind closed doors, they're telling her, sure, Nancy, go ahead. Go to Taiwan. We, we, we give you permission. You have country clearance, and you have desk clearance. So go ahead and do it. So my question to you then is why the subterfuge? Why not just be honest about the administration's China policy? Why are they lying to us and saying they don't want her to go? Well, I think the the U.S. government and other governments have a pattern of, of dishonesty and secrecy. Uh, so that would fit, this would fit with that larger pattern. And I mean, maybe uh, they want to give the impression to the American public that they're being reasonable, uh, and that you know that the Biden administration is kind of trying to rein in some of the more uh, extreme elements, uh, or you know, that would inflame this conflict and present this you know rational face. Uh, when really it's a pretty extreme policy they've they've been pursuing in provocations. And that really they uh, endorse what the you know radicals are, are doing to to provoke a conflict and support you know Taiwan to the hilt. And I mean, this is an administration that has been providing huge weaponry to Taiwan, special forces training, sending ships into the Taiwan Straits. 
uh, violation of, of international law to inflame the Chinese. So uh, this is just one more more act to uh, inflame and provoke tensions, and you know maybe create a war. But I guess they want to again present an image to the public of being level-headed, and that it's the Chinese that are the unreasonable ones. So what exactly? Is Nancy Pelosi trying to accomplish by going to Taiwan? Statements from Beijing have been increasingly threatening over the last few days. Is the purpose of this trip just to see how the Chinese uh, would react? Is it to show solidarity with Taiwan? Is it to negotiate a weapons deal? Why cause such a ruckus if we don't even know what the purpose of the trip is and how this trip is going to support U.S. policy in the region? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Pelosi has a long pattern of uh, you know anti-Chinese actions, uh, so she may uh, you know personally want to do this uh, to express her solidarity with Taiwan. Uh, probably there are some secret agreements being worked out. I mean, there would have to be, as you suggest, some some real reason for her to go there, and there may be some secret deals that they're working out that have not been announced to the public that we don't know about with relation to probably weapon sales. Uh, uh, or special forces, uh, or some other, you know, cooperation. I mean, maybe it has to do with the, uh, you know, the electronics. And I mean, Taiwan is so vital in the production of, of uh, was it super chips and, and electronics? Yeah, right. Uh, so maybe there's some arrangement they're making in the economic sphere that they're not announcing. So that's probably part of it. Uh, and then again, yeah, it's maybe this uh, you know hawkish element uh, that wants to really express their solidarity. And I don't know, they seem just reckless and almost crazy to me to try and provoke a war with a major power like China seems to me to be crazy. And they're just doing everything they can to antagonize the Chinese uh, for no reason uh, when, when the U.S. and China are so— uh, interdependent economically, yeah. it seems insane what they're doing and, and irrational. It seems it seems insane and irrational to me too, and and I'm genuinely confused as to how this um, supports U.S. policy. I just don't understand why, when the administration is working working to confront uh, uh, this war in in Ukraine, why they would allow themselves to be distracted by uh by a diplomatic problem with the chinese of the united states own making it just doesn't make any sense to me yeah i mean it, it may be a growing desperation you know given the economic problems uh, here in the united states uh, they want to divert people's attention to the threat of a foreign enemy and you know, war. They think that the maybe economy could be stimulated through arms sales and, and war. But, I mean, provoking a world war is just, again, the height of, of absolute insanity, especially in this case where, you know, China is an extremely advanced country militarily. And I mean, Chinese technology is way ahead in many ways of the U.S., uh, including military technology and cutting-edge area like AI. So to provoke a war is just, uh, I mean, is just completely, uh, again, insane. And it's a war the U.S. Uh, could not win, I don't think, uh, if there's any winner in that war at all. So yeah. if that's a solution they have to the domestic problem and, and the economic problems, uh, it just shows that the governing class is completely bankrupt. 
I'm going to leave it there. That was the voice of Dr. Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and we'll be back. Stay tuned. bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are talking about what might, we've said this several times, I feel like already, but what might be the end of negotiations on a return to a nuclear nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, and we are also going to talk about the political turmoil in Iraq. Uh, like clockwork, an hour ago, uh, the U.S. announced new sanctions on entities that I believe it is accusing of helping ship Iranian oil to East Asia uh, on four companies, one based in the UAE, three based in Hong Kong. So we will talk about, you know, whether we should see these sanctions as connected to this negotiation process as completely separate, as the U.S. always wants to say. I believe Anthony Blinken came out and said, no, we, we really want to really want to rejoin a nuclear deal. Never mind these sanctions have nothing to do with it. So we are going to talk to our guest about what all of this means. We're joined by political analyst and University of Tehran professor Mohammed Morandi. Thanks for joining us again, Mohammed. Thank you very much for having me. So, I mean, we, we have these sanctions here, uh, you know, dropped into the middle of this situation. But let's start with the, the stage that was set and and whether there really is a, a possible return to an Iran nuclear deal. Uh, and honestly, whether whether these negotiations have been on the part of the U.S., at least a charade all along in the last week, uh, the top negotiator for Europe said, look, I don't think there's any more chance of significant compromise. What we have hammered out is the best possible deal at the moment. Uh, the deal on the table reflects the determination of all participants to ensure the New Deal's sustainability, including the commitment of the United States and assurances in this regard. So in his words, this is deal is better protected from potential unilateral moves to undermine it. And as, as you have said in the past, guarantees uh, of a deal's sort of uh, longevity and robustness were a major issue for Iran. Uh, Iran now says it has responded to this deal. And so I wonder if you can start by telling us uh, whether there is something to be hopeful about in this final text and what you know of Iran's response. It's hard to say, because obviously the Europeans, they are in the American camp. They're not going to put pressure on the Americans. Whatever draft they've proposed, they've obviously given it to the Americans, they've worked on it with the Americans, and they have the consent of the Americans. It is interesting, though, uh, that uh, the statement does imply, by the statement by the European representative, it does imply that the problem is the United States. Mm -hmm. The uh, unilateral uh, discontinuation of commitments, that, that alludes to the United States. It doesn't allude to anyone else. So the Europeans are admitting that the problem is the United States and that the United States can 
cause problems unless there are sufficient guarantees. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that the text that we've seen so up to now, at least, what we've seen is that the Europeans will not put pressure on the Americans mm -hmm. to give the sort of commitments necessary for Iran to uh, agree to restart the nuclear deal. The Iranians have a, a very dark history with Americans. Mm -hmm. The Americans tore up the agreement under Trump. Under Obama, they violated the deal. And of course, under Biden, uh, we see the United States pursuing Trump's policies mm -hmm. towards Iran, mm -hmm. whereas the Iranians were abiding by all of their commitments. But what I can say, though, and this is not really linked to the negotiations in, in directly, is that the world is changing. The United States is, and its NATO allies are facing crisis in Europe. And it's not just a military crisis. It's not just an economic crisis. It's not just a social crisis. It's, it's everything. It's a political crisis. So they, they have their hands full. And then, of course, you have the provocations in Taiwan, where the United States is basically sending the, it's the speaker of its uh, parliament or the speaker of Congress to, to uh, China. Mm -hmm without the consent of the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. So you have all these multi, you have all these different crises and then Kosovo and um, and Serbia mm -hmm. all of these simultaneously uh, are a huge burden on the United States. And uh, the Iranians feel that the Americans really uh, don't have the sort of of power that they had a decade ago or half a decade ago, a couple of decades ago, to put uh, pressure on Iran. Uh, I mean, we, we do have pressure as we speak, mm -hmm. but uh, it's declining. The Iranian relations with Russia are evolving very rapidly. The Russians need uh, the, a corridor through Iran. They need to cooperate with Iran. Mm -hmm. Neighboring countries are moving closer to Iran because they see a decline in the fortunes of global powers. So we see Central Asian countries tilting towards Iran. Ca the Caucasus, uh, the, 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 sorry, the uh, uh, Azerbaijan, Armenia, mm -hmm. and and Georgia, and 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 the. the uh, Arabian Peninsula, countries of the Arabian Peninsula, are all shifting their policies gradually with regards to Iran. And of course, there's China. We had a, immediately after the converse of the, the, the very the failure uh, in the negotiations between Biden and President Xi on the phone a couple of days ago, we had a very fruitful t phone conversation between the Iranian president, Mr. Raisi, and President Xi of China. So when you look at the, the, the broader picture, the Iranians are in a much stronger position today than they were a few years ago, and the Americans simply don't seem to be able to register that. Well, let me ask you, you know, I, I heard one assessment of this process that concluded that the Biden administration had actually never really intended to reenter the deal, uh, but it engaged in these negotiations to make 
the new administration appear to have really tried and that the key audience for all of this is Europe, which kind of, you know, I think goes along with what you've said. The, the world does seem to be shifting. The U.S. has, uh, you know, seems to have less of a sort of gravitational pull. And, you know, some of it's but it's it's strongest uh, allies and backers continue to be Europe. And so uh, this analysis was that, you know, the Biden administration wanted to convince European leaders that it did its best to undo all the bad actions of the Trump administration. And, you know, it, it, this was all done to sort of further its relationship with European nations and to appear to once again be reasonable. And so I wonder, you know, looking at these negotiations, do, do you think that that could be the case, that this was all sort of a, uh, you know, a, a little bit of like U.S. pantomime for Europe and that it has, I mean, as this analysis uh, concluded, that that it has been successful, right? That, that the U.S. has got Europe sort of firmly back in its pocket for the moment. Uh, and the European leaders are sort of taking this as, well, we, we worked really hard. We weren't able to get to a deal, but it's not not necessarily the fault of the United States. I don't know. I mean, that is a plausible um, argument to make because of the way which, in which the U.S. negotiates. It, it does. You, you could look at it from that perspective. I do think, though, that the Americans want to deal. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem is, is, is that the Americans can't bring themselves to accept the fact that in order to have a deal, they're going to have to show res some respect for the other side. Mm -hmm. That's not something that the Americans are used to doing. Mm -hmm. They have to give commitments that are um, that are very carefully constructed. And I think that the Americans don't want that. They're not they're used to being able to do whatever they want whenever they want. But you know that as I said, that that it that era is over. I think the Americans are sort of experiencing maybe the pro the troubles that the British were experiencing after the Second World War, where the empire was rapidly collapsing. And the British wanted to show their themselves to be strong, so they went in when they invaded the Suez in the, the, the Suez crisis. Uh, they were trying to project power to show that everyone that they were still the you know a superpower, but they failed, mm -hmm. and the, the crisis only exposed the British to be weaker uh, than ever before. Back then, of course, the Americans replaced the British as the global power. But now there really isn't anyone, at least in the Western camp, to replace the United States. So basically, what I'm saying is that the argument that you make is plausible mm -hmm. because it fits with the way in which the Americans have been negotiating. They've been negotiating in bad faith. Uh, but I do think that the Americans need a deal very much. Yeah. So I think they want to deal, but they don't want to um, implement the JCPOA in full. Mm -hmm. They want to have their cake and eat it too. I mean, of course, you know, Anthony Blinken issued the statement today when the new sanctions were announced that, you know, uh, the U.S. is going to keep using its authorities to target Iran's exports of petroleum and petrochemicals until Iran is ready to return to the full implementation of its commitments under a mutual return to the JCPOA. So they are really sticking with the story that they want to return and that, you know, we shouldn't see uh, sanctions like these, which continue to drop steadily as uh, as poisoning that well at all. Yes. And 
the U.S. authority, uh, as they call it, is is on the is on the decline. Mm -hmm. The Iranians are selling their oil, whether the Americans like it or not. The U.S. is implementing maximum pressure sanctions. Mm -hmm. They sanctioned everything. There yeah. isn't anything more for them to sanction. They yeah. can keep re-sanctioning. But Iran's going to sell its oil. There's a huge demand across the world for Iranian oil, yeah. So as, as well as uh, other products and, and gas. And any attempt to deprive Iran of its earnings is is going to fail because of the as I said because of the the, the global energy market right now. Mm -hmm. So the United States is simply hurting itself because the longer this process takes, the longer we move forward without a nuclear deal, the more difficult it is going to be for the Europeans mm -hmm. and the Americans who are buying gasoline at an extremely high price, who are paying high energy bills, and uh, who are going to have a very tough time this winter. Mm -hmm. So they're just going to make it all the more difficult. Yeah, I feel like I have to mention Middle East advisor Bruce McGurk, uh, apparently on a call last week, saying a return to the deal was highly unlikely. And he was talking to some think tankers. This is according to an Axios report by a bunch of anonymous sources uh, saying seemed unlikely to return to a deal. But that's just because the U.S. wanted a longer and stronger one. So it seems like this might be uh, what they decide to run with if, uh, you know, if if this last best offer is is unacceptable to either side. Um, Mohammed, while we have you, I also wanted to ask you about what is going on politically in Iraq. Um, after being unable to form a government for the past, I think it is eight months since there were parliamentary elections in October, uh, Muqtada al-Sadr, who's described as one of the most powerful people in Iraq and the leader of one parliamentary bloc, uh, last month he ordered all his members uh, to resign, the members of his bloc to resign. And uh, it was his supporters who occupied the Iraqi parliament last week. week protesting the nomination of another man to the minister, prime minister's position, uh, Mohammed Shia al-Sudani. So it was Sadr's faction that won the most votes in the election, uh, though not enough to elect a president and form a government. Sadr is trying to frame himself as representing a diverse coalition and speaking for the majority of the country and is sort of set up what he proposes in opposition uh, to what are described as Iran-backed groups, including that of the former prime minister. Sutter is also promoting this idea of a national majority government, uh, as opposed to the ethnic and sectarian kind of quota system that was set up after the U.S. withdrawal. And so I wonder if you could talk to us about what what is happening here, you know, what it would mean for Sutter to get his way and to have a, a national majority government in the country and how dangerous it is for the members of his bloc to leave government. Well, I think the person foremost thing that we have to keep in mind is that if there is any serious unrest in Iraq, that will affect Iraqi oil exports. Mm -hmm. And Iraq is exporting millions of barrels of oil a day. So imagine those exports being cut off tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That would take oil prices well above $200, million, $200 a barrel, well over that, at least. So it isn't in the interest of the United States or Turkey or NATO countries to play with fire in Iraq. Maybe it is in the interest of the Saudis and the Emiratis and the 
Qatari government because the, the, the worse the global markets, the better it is for them mm. because they export more oil at higher prices. And we've seen that the Saudis and the Emiratis are be, beginning to show disobedience in the face of American pressure. But for the global economy, for the United States, for the Europeans and for, for NATO countries and for the rest of the world, major instability in Iraq can bring about the seriously it can seriously bring about the collapse of the global economy mm-hmm. uh, it, it it can be that bad because Iraq is a major oil exporter right now mm-hmm. it is it is it is selling a lot of oil so that's one issue Muqtada Sadar is has the largest in the recent elections had the largest Shia uh, coalition mm-hmm. or the largest Shia faction, uh, but the the other Shia groups, which were smaller, they united and they formed the majority of the Shia mm-hmm. population. So Muqtada Sadr is a, is actually uh, the minority when it comes to the Shia population. One of the sad things about the U.S. occupation of Iraq is that. Um, you know, among all the other tragedies, is that the United States actually used sectarianism as a tool. They mm-hmm. played off one sect against another in order to maintain their authority. And that was partially the reason why, well, that was basically the reason why Iraq fell into civil war. So uh, right now we have a very fragmented political scene. And it's not just the Shia, it's the Kurds and the Sunnis, the, the whole country, the, the politics of the whole country is fragmented. And any um, any dangerous step by any of the players could ignite uh, conflict uh, across the country. Mm-hmm. And as I said, that's not in the interest of the Iraqi people. And that's not in the interest of the United States. Mm-hmm. So the smart thing for the Americans would be to stop playing with Iraqi politics, try, stop using Iraq as a um, as a base or as a platform to harm Iran, mm-hmm. and let and for the United States to allow Iraq to play its natural role in the region. The United States wants to keep Iraq and Iran separated. Mm-hmm. But as long as it does that, it's keeping the people of Iraq impoverished mm-hmm. because overwhelmingly the, pop, the Iraqi population lives alongside the Iranian border. Mm-hmm. The west of Iraq is mostly desert, and it is the east of Iraq that is alongside the 1,250-kilometer 1, uh, border mm-hmm. that is densely populated. So when the Americans try to impede trade— and cooperation between Iran and Iraq, they may think that they are achieving their goals and harming Iran. But if they press this too hard, and they create uh, and they and they create mass poverty in Iraq as they are, have done, and uh, if they uh, push for the fragmentation of Iraqi politics as they've done, then the results will not be something that anyone can control. And then, as I said, if if there is civil war, if there is con- major conflict, then there will be no oil exports, mm-hmm. and Iran won't be the loser. It will be the United States. It will be all of those countries whose economy—I mean, the United States doesn't import oil. 
But when the price of oil goes up, the U.S. consumer uh, has to pay for energy, oh, yeah. has to pay for electricity, has to pay for fuel. So they lose just as much as anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. And it does seem, I mean, this is obviously something that we will be watching because it does seem potentially pretty, pretty dangerous to have, a, you know, someone in control of a pretty powerful bloc decide to sort of wa walk away from a par parliament, right? Walk away from a political procedure. And as you say, you know, when you, when you try to uh, get into Western reporting on Iraqi politics, it sort of breaks, you know, breaks down every different faction uh, according to its uh, supposed support or lack of support from Iran. But you very quickly realize these threads are a lot, it's a lot less, uh, the lines between all these different uh, parties and factions are a lot less clear because, of course, these are neighboring countries who have a very strong interest in what's going on over the border. So, yeah, these these efforts to, I think, to to shatter things and keep them shattered. Uh, I mean, this has been bad for the Iraqi people, of course, for for several decades. Uh, but the the blowback is going to be very serious. It was Professor Mohammed Morandi, a political analyst whose insights we really value. Thanks for talking to us again. We will, of course, ask you about this again in the future. We're going to take a quick break here on political misfits and come back uh, to talk a little bit of domestic news. Get into that very weird, pretty sinister FBI raid on a, a couple of uh, African socialist and solidarity movements and a whole lot more in the next hour. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Fits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov will soon have a substantive conversation about a prisoner exchange. We told you a little bit about that last week. The Biden administration wants the return of Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. The Russians want Victor Boot. He's an arms dealer who's serving a long sentence in a maximum security penitentiary in Marion, Illinois. Besides that, he's in a restrictive communications management unit, or CMU, and he's suffering from ill health, including an untreated fungal infection, over his entire body. This is not unusual treatment in the U.S. prison system, and being in a CMU, it's often prohibitively difficult for the truth about your situation to make its way out to the public. That's how abuse happens. And in part, that's why the U.S. prison system is so corrupt. We're joined by Dana Gottesfeld. She's the wife of whistleblower Marty Gottesfeld, and she's the director of the group Free Marty G. Welcome, Dana. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. We're so glad to have you, Dana. Thanks for joining us. And let's begin with Marty's situation. Marty blew the whistle on medical malpractice at Boston Children's Hospital, and he was punished severely for it. He received a 10-year sentence. It's an unusually long and harsh sentence for a whistleblower. One of the unusual things about that sentence is that he was not sent to a minimum security work camp. He was not sent to a low security prison. Instead, he was sent to a maximum security penitentiary, and he was placed in a communications management unit. Why, why did that happen? He was supposed to be in a low uh, security prison, and he is instead in a 
communications management unit. Why did that happen? That is a great question and one of so many that we've had throughout this process. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's not just that, but, you know, they told him that he would be eligible for the Residential Drug Abuse Program, or RDAP, which right. shaves a year off of his sentence. Um, but he would need to be outside of the CMU to do it, and they won't let him out of the CMU. You know, they did exactly the same thing to the drone whistleblower, Daniel Hale. They told him that he would be eligible for RDAP, the Residential Drug and Alcohol Program. Um, you you literally watch DVDs of the A&E television series Intervention every week, and then they take 12 months off your sentence. Um they did exactly the same thing to him rather than to send him to a low security prison where he would have received treatment for his PTSD. They sent him to this communications management unit at Marion and effectively extended his sentence by a year. So tell us a little bit about the restrictions uh, within a CMU. Marty's in there with some very bad people, some very dangerous people, but he's also in there with some people who could arguably be called political prisoners. Uh, people like Daniel Hale, for example, or Victor Boot, who's been in the news lately. So tell us about what restrictions Marty is facing in this CMU. Uh, well, the CMU um, is different than other facilities in the Bureau of Prisons because it bans all any forms of physical contact, um, you know, with prisoners outside of the CMU because the CMU is just one unit inside of a larger prison. They right. interact with other people. And, um, you know, they are also, it's even more restrictive than the Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, where prisoners have four times more time, uh, visitation allotted than prisoners in the CMU. There's no explanation for why people are sent there or any review or appeal process to get back into general population. Mm. Um, but, you know, the CMUs are filled with people um, who organized for the rights of other prisoners or filed grievances based on mistreatment or participated in social justice movements. And, and um, it's disproportionately Muslim. And right. it's the CMU is monitored by the counterterrorism unit, and they failed to prevent a radical Islamic attack inside of the CMU. Uh, in the entire time they've been opened, they were unable to produce a single actionable piece of intelligence. So that's in over 10 years. And they don't even monitor actual terrorist prisoners, like, unlike, you know, for actual terrorism. And that's what the DOJ Office of Inspector General found. Good Lord. So really, the the point isn't the collection of intelligence. The The point is punishment, right? I mean, I understand, for example, if you put John Gotti in the CMU, and John Gotti was in this CMU until he died. I understand if you put the last surviving member of the Abu Nidal organization or a, a hijacker who killed a bunch of people. I understand that. I don't understand putting political prisoners or whistleblowers in a place like this, unless, unless the goal is specifically to silence them. Is that what Marty's encountered? Yes. And also, I mean, the, uh, the CMUs are, get a lot of federal funding. And if they're not being used to monitor terrorists, how are they defending 
all of this federal funding that they get? That's a, that's a good question. You know, there's there's plenty of terrorists that don't make it into the CMU. Sure. And people with political opinions and activism that, that are placed there. And yeah, it's very unsettling. It's, you know, not only that, but then they'll also um, cut off communication with families. And, you know, they're trying their best to limit it. They're trying their best to effectively muzzle people to stop their activism. And, I mean, in Marty's case, not only do they just limit him to two call, two 15-minute calls a week and emails, but they stopped letting us talk altogether. So I hadn't heard from him since September 2021. Oh, my God. Email just, just returned on May 29th, 2022, and I still haven't had a call with him since. Uh, September 2021. They're extremely punitive. I have to tell you, too, Marty is one of the most resourceful people uh, that I've ever met. He has continued to write while incarcerated. He's continued to write while being held in the CMU, even though he's been out of touch with you personally uh, because he's been stripped of his ability to make phone calls, as you said. What he's telling us about Uh, conditions inside the CMU, even if it's just in bits and pieces, is shocking. So tell us a little bit about what you've learned from Marty about um, the challenges that he's faced with, with crooked prison guards, with a system that is set up to attack civil liberties. What are they doing to him to sort of break his spirit? Yeah, so at his last prison at the CMU in Terre Haute, he filed a Prison Rape Elimination Act complaint uh, or CREA complaint against the CMU unit manager, uh, unit manager Todd Sawyer. Um, and now, when he's at USP Marion, uh, one of the one of the unit officers was fired after he tried to solicit a minor. Oh. And now this guy, his name is uh, Jay Smith, has started calling Marty the brown guy. Um, Marty filed a complaint against him but heard nothing back. He asked to preserve audio and video surveillance of their interactions, and he heard nothing back. And so um, CEO Smith now started destroying his property. And just last month, um, on July 10th, uh, Smith took a box from him that contained um, some some stuff in his written materials, and he placed it outside the unit without scanning the materials. Um, and now the box is gone. So he's literally just destroying Marty's stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Smith, Smith also retaliated against another black adult in custody. Um, the black adult in custody um, had complaints that... Uh, Mr. Smith was was doing this discrimination and um, exhibiting aggression in the sh- in the shoe. The shoe is uh, the special housing unit. It's uh, solitary confinement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, Smith called him a retard and oh threw a heavy plastic box of legal work at his head. Um, like Marty's box of legal work weighed like eighty pounds, for example. Um, and then Smith said to this guy, it's about time you get treated like an inmate. And even 40 minutes later, he stayed enraged and unprofessional. Um, my God. Yeah. The, uh, Smith said to him, like about making complaints, like you can wish in one hand and sit in the other and see which one fills up first. And 
like those are just some recent examples. Yeah. Also, that the medical department acts like HIPAA is a joke and record keeping is for nerds, and informed consent is something that more civilized countries worry about. I've mentioned on the show a couple of times, and I've written a couple of op-eds about the the process by which a prisoner uh, can complain about this kind of abuse. And, and the system is set up in such a way that it's almost impossible to complain and to have your complaint heard, especially at the federal level. There, the, You have to fill out a form eight, uh, BP 8.5. It goes to the person who abused you. He rejects it. Then a BP-9 goes to your unit manager, he rejects it, then a BP-10 to the warden, BP-11, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And if you have an actual case, they'll just transfer you to another prison, in which case you have to start back at the beginning again. Uh, This is something that Marty has dealt with on a number of occasions. I remember when Marty first went to prison, he was complaining about... Uh, the the physical conditions inside was it was it MCC uh, Manhattan that he was in where it was so cold that you could see your breath and the toilet water froze. Uh, yeah, MCC New York um, Metropolitan Correctional Center. Right. They kept um, El Chapo and right. Uh, yeah, it's it's notorious. He's filed repeatedly. Uh, filed complaints about prison guards, about conditions at Marion, at the previous prisons, at Terre Haute. Um, He's told us about, like I said, these freezing temperatures, about violations of the Prison Rape uh, uh, Prevention Act and the denial of medical care. Uh, Tell us about what Marty has reported on other prisoners, because he's not worried just about himself. He's talked at length over the last several years about what some of the other prisoners that he's serving with have been subjected to. Yeah, well, you mentioned uh, Victor Bout. Um, he, Victor has a fungal infection that's spreading across his body, and he's being denied, neglected, really, of medical care by the medical department. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Marty felt that, I mean, and this was before the news about um, the potential prisoner swap became public, but Marty suspected that um, he'd be used as a pawn in a geopolitical gamesmanship. And there it is. Um, yeah. And, you know, maybe the, the rational deduction is that the Biden administration is trying to put pressure on, on Putin before this uh, rumored prisoner exchange. But, you know, this guy is suffering um, with a medical situation that's not getting better and is in violation of his human rights under the duties of the Bureau of Prisons to attend to his medical care. But, you know, there's um, physician's assistants. Uh, I think their names are Miss Brooks and Miss Harbison, who are just denying him dermatological and myological care. My goodness. You know, uh, Michelle and I were talking about this before the show started, and and really all anybody needs to do for a fungal infection like this is just go to CVS and buy some antifungal cream, and you're as good as cured. Mm -hmm. But they don't do that in the Bureau of Prisons. One of the things that that I learned early on when I was in prison was— A lot of the people who serve as physician's assistants or nurses are um, either members of the uh, National Health Service 
who are, you know, federal bureaucrats and they don't care one way or the other. I mean, they're they're not going to get promoted if they treat you. They're not going to get promoted if they don't treat you. So they don't care. But even more troublesome was a lot of them are doctors who have lost their medical licenses. When when I was imprisoned at um, at the Federal Correctional Institution at Loretto, Pennsylvania, uh, our doctor was a disgraced pediatrician from Cleveland who had taken some sort of liberties with a child and um, and lost his license. And the only job he could get was in the prison. And that's the story of the Bureau of Prisons. I mean, a lot of doctors are like that all across the country. And again, they don't care if they treat you or don't treat you. And even if they wanted to treat you, uh, in most cases, they don't have the budget to do it. Wow. Uh, it, <laughs> I can't even I can't even pick which element to be upset about. <laughs> how do I, how do you even choose anymore? <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, uh, have you heard anything from Marty? Uh, I, I know you haven't spoken to him uh, since uh, since last September, but uh, like I say, he's prolific in his writing. Uh, is he working on anything in particular right now? Yeah, um, we've and this is just a little sneak peek, but um, we've found that uh, in the first circuit, cases are supposed to be randomly distributed to um, different judges. Who, who sit on right. the panel of judges and cases involving like health and human services and the department of children and families are seem to be disproportionately going to one judge in particular. Her name is uh, Loretta Lynch um, or, or sorry, judge Lynch. Um, mm. And there's no mathematical reason that that should be happening unless somebody has their uh, finger on the scale. So we're looking into the mathematical uh, part of it just to verify our numbers, and then we'd like to really make sure that it gets some attention. So what you're saying is that she is reserving these. It's a woman, I'm assuming. Is that right? Yeah. This judge, she's she's um, reserving these cases for herself. Um, well, I don't I don't know exactly what's going on in the back end, but she's getting she's being assigned to all of these cases. And she always seems to rule um, favorable to the Department of Health and Human Services or the DCS um, over the objections of all these people that have been hurt by those agencies. Like in Boston, um, I think it was in like 2014, the Boston Globe published an article that 95 children have died um, under the DCS watch. And you know, as a as a circuit judge. Um, her her rulings are like shouldn't be um, underestimated because then all of the lower courts have to follow her precedent. Right. So she seems to be uh, hell bent on maintaining the status quo, um, which really hurts a lot of people that would need to see change from that agency. Some of our most vulnerable children. Um, I went onto the BOP website a couple of days ago uh, to take a look at Marty's status and the status of uh, Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower, and I I saw that they're both um, scheduled to be released next year uh, within a couple of months of each other. Uh, it, that would be a year earlier. That would be this year had they been allowed to enroll in RDAP, which was taken away from them. Uh, so expecting Marty to be home next year, what's next for him? 
uh, he has a, a recognized voice on these prison reform issues. What are his plans? Sorry, quick correction. Uh, not Loretta Lynch. It's Sandra Lynch, the judge. Sandra Lynch, thank you. And then um, I think he's actually scheduled to be released in December of 2024. Oh, 2024. I thought it was 2023. No, I wish. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Our gap would come through. Yeah, no, that's, that's fine. Um, so it's about another two and a half years. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think that he has plans, but he has communicated over email that he doesn't feel comfortable sharing them. With yeah. Me. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I communicate, communicate with Marty, he's very, very careful about what he says. In fact, we, we, did a little experiment the other day. I, I said, um, tell Daniel, I said, hello. That's all I said. Tell Daniel, I said, hello. And the message went through. And so Marty responded to me that the message had gone through and he was shocked that it had, I was shocked as well. Another thing that kind of shocked us was, you know, when I was in prison, I was in a, what's called a modified CMU. So, um, there was a five day hold on my, um, on my outgoing and incoming email. Uh, both my outgoing and incoming mail would be, um, opened and read, uh, with Marty for whatever reason, there recently hasn't been a delay on his emails, at least to me. Um, he'll put the time that he sends them and it's consistent with the time that the machine says it's been sent. So I don't know if they're playing games with him or, you know, just trying to see what's going to happen if they lift some of these restrictions, uh, something that bears watching anyway. So anyway, what, one of the things that I said to him mm-hmm. besides uh, besides tell David I said hello was what I just told you, that he's got this recognized voice on these issues of of prison reform, and I hope he's working on a book. I fear now that um, even if he was working on a book, they've taken away his draft and and destroyed it. So we'll see what he's able to come out with. Yeah. Well, well speaking to that, that last point, um, Marty's indicated that the places um, gives the impression that it's, um, it's crumbling, that it's too many people, not enough funding. Yeah. Like he's wondering if it's, the beginning of the end of the CMU from a funding perspective. But, um, you know, these people are half checked in anyways. They're, they're not getting the best and the brightest, even yeah. from a count, quote, counterterrorism unit that's supposed to be the ones monitoring these emails and stuff. Oh, yeah. That, you know, where, where does the funding go? What does it do? And why, <laughs> and why is it being used on, you know, prisoners and, like, running an efficient population? I think the Bureau of Prisons is largely the black sheep agency of the federal government. Like, what a mess. Oh, listen, in in just the last two years, more than 100 employees of the Bureau of Prisons have been arrested and charged with crimes. Most of those crimes are things like smuggling drugs and phones into the prison or, um, you know, selling access to prisoners or sexually assaulting prisoners. Yeah, these are bad people. I mentioned just a week ago that there was a book uh, written by a professor of criminal justice at John Jay College in New York, and he said that his findings were 
that most um that the Bureau of Prisons really acts as a as an employment agency for otherwise unemployable rural white men. You know, these prisons are all out in the sticks where there's no other industry. These guys get out of the military. They're too stupid to to get through the the local police academy. And in order to get a job with the Bureau of Prisons, all you need is a GED and no felony convictions. Literally, that's it. And you can have a, a career as a prison guard. I suspect even the felony convictions part is flexible. I, I think you're probably right. I think I think it is flexible. In private. Much, much as I hate to say it. Well, Dana, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Dana Gottesfeld. Thanks for joining us, Dana. Dana is the wife of whistleblower Marty Gottesfeld, and she's the director of the group Free Marty G. You can find them on Facebook, so check it out. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come back. without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And as promised, we're going to get into one of the strangest stories of the weekend. And that is, of course, this FBI raid on uh, two related groups Mm -hmm. in Florida and Missouri, the Uhuru Solidarity Movement and the African People's Socialist Party. Uh, As we mentioned early in the show, organizers' homes and their group's headquarters were raided on Friday by the FBI on suspicion that these groups, which I had not heard of before, uh, had been funded by Russia to promote Russian propaganda and interfere with elections in the United States. And so the DOJ indictment of the Russian person who's accused of orchestrating this activity, um, Alexander Ionov, Ionov, whatever. Um, It doesn't name these groups, but it seems that St. Petersburg police uh, have confirmed that this raid was connected. And the the groups in the indictment are referred to as like political group one and political group two. And and I think this, uh, the the person that actually ran in this race got something like 1% or 1.2%. And I mean, again, this is like about not, you know, this is about not registering. These are longstanding organizations yeah, with right. specific missions that don't have anything to do with Russia. So we are going to talk about what it means to be consistently uh, anxious about and uh, targeting, in particular, uh, political groups mm-hmm. that attract minorities and that are about, you know, uh, attempting to rectify the United States pretty gruesome mm-hmm. past when it comes to minorities in general and black people in particular. And we are joined for this conversation by Netfa Freeman. He's an organizer in Pan-African Community Action. He's on the coordinating committee of the Black Alliance for Peace, and he is co-producer and host of the radio show and podcast Voices with Vision. You can hear that on WPFW. Netfa, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'll try to break down this initial story uh, about this FBI raid uh, a little bit further. Um, the, the home 
and headquarters of this Uhuru Solidarity Movement and African People's Socialist Party were raided. The leadership of both of these groups have been uh, refreshingly unrepentant, saying things like, don't tell us we can't have friends that you don't like and we can have relationships with whoever we want to make this revolution possible. Uh, as John mentioned when we started the show, uh, in the raid, I think in St. Louis, on the home of the leader of the African People's Socialist Party, uh, he says he was never shown a warrant for the raid, that the raid was unnecessarily violent, they used flashbang grenades and drones, and that he and his wife were handcuffed in the process. Uh, the DOJ says this person that they have indicted, this Russian national, Yonov, provided financial support to the group's and directed them to publish pro-Russian propaganda that they coordinated and funded direct action by these groups within the United States intended to further Russian interests and coordinated coverage of this activity in Russian media outlets. Basically, that he turned them into illegal agents of the Russian government. And as I joked this morning, you know, it, it dumped into all of this is election interference, the likes of which I cannot actually find any details mm -hmm. about. Uh, but, you know, you got to wonder if somebody got that, right. that $10 million. Um, I want to stop here. There are more details to go into. But, you know, this is not the first time we have seen connections drawn between specifically African and African-American groups and Russia in the context of Russiagate. And I think there is this idea that these groups are, are the soft underbelly of the United States and that our history of enslaving, murdering and exploiting African people makes uh, groups of African people, African-American people, uh, vulnerable to exploitation in turn by America's enemies. And so I wanted to start off by talking about what exactly these groups are accused of doing, and also, you know, uh, about this sort of larger anxiety that black people in the U.S. are going to be conspiring with the enemy. So, um, well, um, first, I, I got to, you know, start with um, defining this enemy thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, it, 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 it begs some, some, some premises there that what is that? What is Whose enemy is it? Mm -hmm. Russia is not. And we don't have to be told. Black people don't have to be told, you know, who's deploying the police in our communities and, and who's funding the 1033 program militarization of the police, who's been surveilling uh, activists and movements that we call referred to as Black Lives Matter and all that. I mean, it's, you know, we don't have to be told these things. The stuff is here. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're accusing basically the, the African People's Socialist Party um, of being influenced and actually spreading, you know, doing the work of spreading, spreading Russian propaganda. I guess that, they, you know, like you said, there's no specifics there. Mm -hmm. not saying what well, they passed out this leaflet that was written by this Russian, you know, they're not doing any of that. By the way, this is actually uh, par for the course in terms of U.S. foreign policy in other countries. Mm -hmm. They're accusing Russia of doing and conspiring with this, you know, this group, which is basis, completely basis, is what they actually do in other countries. Mm -hmm. And so this is, you know, this is, is really ludicrous and it's insulting to African people. And, I, you know, I think we have to remember that this is a settler colonial project that part of its foundation, part of this ingrained in the system is the oppression and repression of indigenous and, and African, you know, descended people and also people who are immigrants and, you know, whoever, and, and also just working class people in general. Mm -hmm. And so if we're not intelligent enough 
to understand our, you know, our plight and then also analyze it and find out what's responsible for it, then it's really insulting. It's not the first time that they've done this. Go These types of uh, accusations go all the way back to, like, Jim Crow days and the Cold War when Russia was still— was our was a was a still socialist and it was the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. They would accuse African communities of you know when we were standing up for, against Jim Crow laws and all that of being influenced by outside agitators. I mean this goes back all, all the way back there. And so we have to. And it's a reoccurring thing. We saw it again. Even what's uh, Susan Rice is the well, she, she's like the national security advisor now. But back then during the George Ford uprising, what we referred to George Ford was they were. And uh, uh, actually accusing the unrest or uh, our dissatisfaction with what was happening as being inspired by Russians. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. I mean, on his face. I just don't even know how they can—it's uh, just so ridiculous. But it's actually—it's uh, it's ridiculous, but it's also cunning in the sense that it sets us up, those of us mm-hmm. who are identifying— um, the uh, at the aspects of oppression and the ways that and the you know, uh, you know the types of foreign policies and things like that that leveling against other countries or even our you know our conditions here mm-hmm. set them up to be able to uh, deploy fascist like uh, the policies against us or, or maneuvers against us mm-hmm. in the name of protecting national security in the name of people being uh, you know going against what uh, America is and all that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the other thing that is, I think, uh, sinister here is that, you know, one of these things, one of the things that these groups are accused of is helping uh, further Russian interests, right? Which is extremely vague. And as we've all heard over and over, you know, quote unquote, Russian interests uh, are, are, is often um, things like, uh, sowing division, right? Sowing, sowing division, uh, exacerbating tensions. These are these sort of vague concepts are all uh, lumped under the umbrella of of Russian interests, and so you end up with any group that sort of points out exploitation, points out discrimination, points out you know the uh, the oppression of some groups of people in this country by other groups of people. Well, that what it, what is that other than sowing division or mm-hmm. po- pointing to division or raising tensions in the United States? And so you know it, it can be as as anything as um, necessary, right, and important as pointing out uh, divisions in our society and pointing out flaws in our society and saying, well, hey, this is this is bad, this thing that's going on, and we should really envision a society without this, can be interpreted as as furthering the interests of, of an enemy nation. And I think it's really dangerous to, to have allowed it to get to this point where we simply assume that Ru- Russia's goal is as vague as sowing division in the United States. And so anyone who's not singing Kumbaya uh, can can be cast under suspicion. Mm-hmm. And it's meant to intimidate us. It's meant to intimidate us not to speak out. It's meant to intimidate us. And, and as you at the end of what you characterizing, it was more accurate. The weird, the people who are pointing out these things are not the sowers of division. Mm-hmm. Conditions themselves sow division. Mm-hmm. They actually are, you know, delineated interests between the ruling classes, uh, you know, U.S. is an oligarchy, mm-hmm. those who are subjected to it. Those are the divisions, and they exist. And so if we point them out, then we're the ones sowing division, which is obviously it's not it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important for us to see 
what's happening and this move against the African People's Socialist Party and and like you said and the, the indictment or the uh, the documents say that there are other groups and they're unidentified. Mm-hmm. They all need to be concerned with who they're considering, who they're leveling against. This, mm-hmm. Against They're going to come after the African or black people first because of our tradition, black people's tradition as being anti-war and anti-imperialist you know, uh, and also being standing up for injustice. So they're going to target us first. But this is counterpart to the recently passed bill that was the uh, H.R. 7311, the malign Russian influence Mm-hmm. Malign Russia Activities in Africa Act. Mm-hmm. You know, and this, yep. because you mean we know people, the the uh, the, uh, the elements in Africa, the states, and even the people, obviously, have not accepted and gone along with NATO's uh, the wars between NATO. I call it NATO. I don't even say <laughs> that Ukraine because it's NATO and Ukraine is just a proxy against Russia and the and, and Russia's uh, op- military operation. In that, in that regard, and they want everyone else to be with them. Back in the reminiscent of the George Floyd, if you're not with us, you're against this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So the African states have taken a position and talked about the hypocrisy. They're going to pass this bill that is supposed to kind of hamstring, you know, hold their aid, withhold their aid, or do whatever they can. And mm-hmm. the name of, in other words, you have to be with us in this thing. Mm-hmm. We're recognizing this particular case that we that we're talking about in the interview interview is the domestic counterpart to the internet to this other other thing uh the countering malign rush activities act so to the foreign policy mm-hmm. implementation of this mm-hmm. yeah and i want to talk about what is happening uh in africa in just a sec but first uh, i have a couple more questions about this one is i had not heard of these two particular groups before mm-hmm. i don't think Mm-mm. um i had neither and so, you know, on one hand, I, I don't think that revolutionary groups really want to uh, shield themselves by saying, oh, we're small. We don't have any power. Why would you target us? And I don't want to be dismissive of small organizations, right? Because you start, everybody starts somewhere. You do the work you can. You hope people catch on. But, you know, in terms of like, I don't know. I wonder if you can talk to us a little more about what is the actual potential reach and influence of these groups and how should we feel about the FBI, you know, target, as you say, there were other groups in that indictment that, um, you know, that we haven't identified yet. How should we feel about the FBI, you know, raiding the homes of groups of this stature uh, under the auspices of preventing, you know, in interference in American politics and our, our multi-billion dollar election system? It was a good question. I, a few, I, well, I've heard of the African People's Socialist Party. I don't know. You named two. I'm not sure what you were referring to as a second. Oh, the Uhuru Solidarity Party, which I guess is a, a group of, of white socialists who are in solidarity with the African People's Socialist Party. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So, they, yeah, I've heard, you know, they've been around for a while. The African People's Socialist Party has been around for quite some time. I've heard of them. I used to be a member of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. Mm-hmm. Distinct groups, kind of similar, you know, we in terms of what the the the— the goal is in terms of advancing socialism and liberation of our people and seeing Africa as our, as the, the as primary. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, um, the, but to answer your question, I think we have to be careful to not, uh, to never take for granted that the U S 
and and the government is what they're saying is true. In other words, are they really concerned with that mm-hmm. influence? I mean, you know, no, they're not really concerned with that. No. Then, uh, but what? But part of the answer to your question is also there are the most more most radical elements and expressions, and and radical being necessary because it will take, take a radical transformation for the conditions that we face to be to be rectified. We've always struggled with trying to, uh, you know, magnify our voice, trying to organize the masses of our people and understand, outline what the cause, the root cause of our condition is. And so um, that's always been a struggle. And and when we focus on our people, then a lot of people who are, in, in particular the grassroots working class people, a lot of those outside of that struggle won't have heard of us, so to speak. And so I think, you know, we need to, I guess, you know, the... For electoral politics in the way it's currently configured, and unless we actually engage in it, when I say us, meaning the the most oppressed of of black and brown people in this country, when we actually engage in it in a movement fashion, Mm -hmm. organize and delegitimizing and taking, you know, the the, uh, Republican, Democrat, the capitalist party. Mm You know the capitalist, imperialist, and oppressive parties, and and they're oppressive domestically speaking. Then, then we can get somewhere. And I think maybe that's what they're afraid of. What they're really afraid of is not our influence, but it's really their wane, their waning influence. Mm-hmm. Crisis of legitimacy that they are facing right now as a as a result of the uh, unsustainable system they're trying. They're committed to uphold. It also does seem like an effort to. Uh, you know, chill attempts at international solidarity, right? If like any contact with certain other governments is going to be criminalized. I also wanted uh, to ask you, Netfa, to comment on something you raised, uh, which is U.S. funding for groups in other countries. Uh, You know, (laughs) easy answer here. Uh, Are we being a little hypocritical in treating these groups as though they've done something criminal uh, when we think about, you know, what, what kind of organizations we like to fund overseas? Mm-hmm. So you know, I don't want to be um, nitpicky here about the the pronouns. I, I think, but I think it's actually very it's, in, uh, it's important when we say we and all those kind of things. Mm. Listening, that we have to make a delineated interest. I mean, delineation between those who are implementing these policies and those who benefit from these policies, and the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And I just think that the, you know, it's not even that this, this even transcends and goes beyond. The race of us, you know, what race you are, anything like that. If we not, you know, supporting these things, and we're not, we're actually never not in a position to implement or act any of them, and we damn sure don't benefit from them. Mm-hmm. I think we should say their policy. <laughs> oh, fair enough. <laughs> and I think it's it's important for us to do it in order to impart a certain uh, ideological disposition and clarity to the people listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that we're, but. Uh, uh, but your question was also, yes, the U.S. Um, does this like through U.S. The U.S. Interna- uh, U.S. Agency for International Development and the so-called non-governmental entity National Endowment for Democracy, the Institute for Republican, the, Na- the National Democratic Institute, all these things, they go in other countries and they co-opt citizens of those countries. They fund them. They start so-called independent, you know, journalism mm-hmm. things. In, in Nicaragua, you know, where we just, they actually instigated a, a coup. Mm-hmm. In 2018, we're trying to, form, you know, and funded it and, and supported it. And now they do, and it's all, all overt. Mm-hmm. And the people actually refer to the, the U.S., I mean, the National Endowment for Democracy is doing 
overtly what the CIA used to do covertly, mm-hmm. interfering in governments, uh, the, the elections, the election they just had in Nicaragua, they condemned it as, you know, illegitimate and all this kind of complete lies where there's different, multiple parties running. There's, you know, popularity polls to show the popularity of the Sandinistas so they didn't have to beg. But they were trying to avert um, the the outcome or at least discredit the outcome. So they they spend lots of money on it, spend people's taxpayers' dollars on this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's beyond hypocrisy. It's even more than hypocrisy in the sense that what they're even accusing uh, Russia of now and the groups that they're saying are aligned with Russia what they're accusing them of doesn't even match what they're actually guilty of in other countries. Mm -hmm. Let me also, while we have you, uh, I do want to talk about Africa itself for a moment. You you referenced this earlier, but the international development news outlet DevX reported last week on a new EU document uh, lamenting the West's losing battle for African hearts and minds over Ukraine, meaning that African states have been pretty reluctant to join punitive measures against Russia and pretty blunt in some of their assessments of uh, the hypocrisy of the West's response. And so this new document that DevX got its hands on proposes tying aid levels to support for the West's positions. And it puts it this way. It says, becoming more transactional in our approach, we should be clear about the fact that the willingness of Europeans to maintain higher levels of financial engagement in African countries will depend on working based on common values and a joint vision, right? And so we can understand these common values and joint vision as towing the line when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. In the meantime, we had the Russian foreign minister meeting with the African Union Commission and member states just a couple days ago and discussing another summit in November. And so I have found it pretty revolting the way the U.S. government in particular has, over the past couple of weeks and months, turned to African nations and said, hey, you know, we really want you to prosper, and we are prepared to help you, and we know how, but you have to get on the same page values-wise, right? As though if the U.S. had wanted these countries to prosper, it wouldn't have changed its own economic policies a long time ago. So I wanted to just ask you to Talk to us a little bit more about, you know, what what this new EU proposal says about the relationship between European governments and African governments and, and whether you think it will actually push African governments toward the West or away. So one thing that people got to be clear is that this so-called, uh, you know, transactional relationship and, and reexamining their, how they do things, this is how they've been doing things in Africa ever since, you know— <laughs> Yeah, is the rise of neocolonialism in the fall, of, you know, and they implemented through the international financial institutions and the World Bank, the IMF, the WTO. They do it when they go and visit these countries. They you know, dangle aid in front of them, and and then the the uh, the occupation of the African continent through the military. I mean, so this is regular. So when they say that they have to reexamine it and figure out these common, you know, these these common shared values, they're really trying to figure out how to increase their gangsterism. And that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, the common values obviously are things that are antithetical to the interests of the masses of people on the ground in Africa, mm-hmm. facing uh, again uh, a rise of you know of people actually wanting to assert self determination, wanting to control the resources in their countries so that they can you know do work them in ways that are beneficial to the masses of the people. Now, neocolonialism, in terms of the the arrangement, the class configuration on the continent makes that difficult. So in other words, you know, 
even if Russia and China come in and do certain things, the, the elite in Africa uh, may, running things may not actually use those, you know, that for the betterment of the people. But it's the beginning, and at least gives the multipolarity to what's happening, gives an alternative to the gangster moves and the, and the unilateral type of situation that Western Europe and the United States have imposed on Africa, the extraction of the resources uh, and then sending back refined goods where the, most of Africa can't really even uh, create its own, you know, create their own refined goods. Mm-hmm. The minerals and everything else are extracted from there, not being able to have their own telecommunications and all that kind of stuff is there. So, um, you know, these things are a result. What they're talking about is a result of their waning influence in the crisis. Again, that word crisis of imperialism can't be underscored. It's unsustainable and that people, and when you have the emergence of other economic powers, in the sense I would call them economic powers, uh, particularly China, and then, you know, Russia exercising some. Russia's not even, you know, socialist, so I don't even, you know. Yeah. But then it gives the other countries alternatives to exercise, even if they're elites, that they, even the elite in Africa would prefer to have these alternatives and have, uh, have choices than to, you know, just be uh, dictated to by the West. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What they're facing, and I think they, and the people are seeing it, the people are hungry, they kicked out, you know, the French, the Mali kicked out France, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, and, the, and so there's a rising opposition to the militarization of the continent by the Western powers, and I think this is what they're uh, responding to it. It's hysteria. It's, for them, it's hysteria and a desperate attempt to uh, hold their heads money. And, you know, speaking of militarization on the continent and, and U.S. military activities there, I, I wanted to ask you before we let you go uh, about this recent report in The Intercept uh, revealing that the U.S. played an unacknowledged role in the 2017 bombing of an internally displaced persons camp in Nigeria that killed more than 160 civilians, many of them children. So it was the Nigerian Air Force that conducted the strike. It was on a camp that Nigeria's own military had set up, uh, the location of which seems to have been pretty well known. uh, But the military said its location wasn't represented on an operational map as a humanitarian base. And so it therefore appeared to be a place where enemy activities might be planned. And it seems like the the intelligence that the Nigerian Air Force was acting on came from the United States, right? Nigerian authorities have suggested this. Um, The U.S. launched what The Intercept terms a basically unprecedented investigation into the strike afterward, right? An investigation into a strike by one of our partners, supposedly, not by us. Um, The investigation was to gather and preserve background information that's relevant to a complete understanding of U.S.-Nigerian operations such as this strike, right? Um, And so, you know, there is so little oversight of AFRICOM, right, and even less of the CIA and special operations activities inside Africa. And so, you know, if there is going to be a tug of war right now between the U.S. on one side and Russia and China right now on the other over African governments and the African population. You know, how will events like this affect that? Mm-hmm. I mean, these kind of things actually happen all the time. And there was, a, you know, Morocco, the the police, U.S. trained police, you know, uh, um, just had a massacre of, of migrants mm-hmm. in the and, and trying to cross into Spanish, Spanish, little Spanish colony. Right. You, and then they, I think, well, 
Um, the last part of your question was how will they affect... I mean, it's just yet another revelation that the United States was, you know, almost certainly involved in an, a strike that killed a bunch of civilians. It's just like how many, you know, what is this sort of drip, drip, drip going to do when it comes to the United States trying to trying to build supposedly right, trying to get African governments on the side of Washington when it comes to uh, Ukraine and other foreign policy issues? Like eventually it would seem that if you are. Uh, implicated in this kind of violence over and over and over, you're eventually going to start losing to other countries that aren't implicated in this kind of violence. Right. But they, they don't really have, have a choice. I'm not, you know, I just was asked this question because they don't really have anything to offer. The, the, the self-determination and whatnot, those kind of things are antithetical to neocolonialism. And the only way to sustain the, the un uh, relenting, unrelenting march towards self-determination by the by people, the masses of the people, to be increasingly oppressive militariz- militarization. This could have been an accident. I don't know, you know, but mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. The fact that it's militarization, they only can offer militarization and not offer and not assist uh, governments uh, and, and leaders in other countries to provide for the people, which would mitigate that. This was certainly that, that, uh, something like that would certainly deal with terrorism and violent extremism. There, these, these things are competition for territory and food and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And so they really don't have any other choice. It's all they have to offer these kind of things. Uh, well, really, in this instance, they really they, uh, we, we see it even domestically. They're always investigating themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like we, we need some kind of independent bodies that are you know not tied to their, uh, you know, under their jurisdiction to do the investigation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, we need the people to think. It's also funny, this investigation, just as an aside, uh, the investigation was uh, specifically designed to not assign any blame and not recommend any disciplinary activities. So they'll investigate, but we don't want to get too close to the actual truth. We are uh, out of time here almost on the show. So I want to thank our guest, Netfa Friedman. He's an organizer in Pan-African Community Action, and he's on the coordinating committee of the Black Alliance for Peace. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners where they can go to listen to your show, Netfa? Oh, well, we're on WPFWFM.org every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. So we come on tomorrow morning. Uh, if you're in the D.C. DMV area, you can listen to it on the radio on 89.3 FM on the FM dial. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, so much for joining us, Nepa. I really appreciate it. Uh, we are going to—we've got a few minutes left, and I have a few stories, John, that I yep. haven't gotten to mention. I do—I want to make sure, you know, it is not a surprise, right? But it feels worth mentioning that— uh, I don't think we talked about this on Friday. The UK High Court decided uh, in favor of Juan Guaido right. in these ongoing Ridiculous. legal battle over control of the country's gold reserves. Because, of course, it's not just Afghanistan right. whose uh, foreign currency and other uh, assets the U.S. decides to hide and freeze. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bank of England is holding almost $2 billion worth of Venezuelan gold. And its high court, after four days, just decided that, no, no, no. The British government recognizes Juan Guaido as interim president of Venezuela. And so control of these $2 billion, which the Venezuelan people could certainly use, should go to a board of advisors nominated by the Venezuelan opposition and not to a board nominated by the head of the country, the actual governing head of the country, Nicolas Maduro. Just Um, crazy. And so, again, yeah, can Juan Guaido— a genuine question. Can Juan Guaido actually show his face in Venezuela? 
these days. I don't know where I, he is. I don't know. I, I think he's in Venezuela, but you know, there's Last a I saw provision. Was him being like run out of some kind of yeah. rally. People, even the opposition is trying to disown him, right? They, oh, yeah. There is an opposition yeah, in Venezuela joke. and they don't want anything to do with him. That's right. He's yeah. a joke. And there's a provision in the Venezuelan constitution that if a person is declared to be president or is recognized to be president, he has 30 days with which to assume the presidency. Mm -hmm. Well, he was quote unquote named president, what, years ago, two and a half years ago. Yeah. So even, even by coup standards, he's not the president of Venezuela. He's just not. This is just face. It feels like face saving by the U S and the UK. Cause what's $2 billion to sure. them really, they're sitting Nothing. on it anyway. They can't give it to Maduro. They got it. Right. You know, we're, we're not really dealing with Juan Guaido anymore. Nobody is. He's not a serious force in politics. He's not going to be able to get us access to Venezuelan oil, for example. No. Um, but you know, we can't let the charade, we have to wait for it to naturally fall away. And this is another one of those examples where we should say shame on Joe Biden. Yeah. Because he could have repaired this diplomatically mm-hmm. had he wanted to, and he didn't want to. He's too busy repairing walls. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump's walls. Where That's right. I guess that I guess it's just there were there were a bunch of bricks left around, and so the Biden administration right. gonna is just going to pick up. them up and put put them in where they're supposed to go. But don't call it building a wall, folks. No. That's not what they're doing. Hey, I wanted to raise something too. Over the weekend, Nichelle Nichols passed away. Mm-hmm. She was eighty nine years old. I I just loved Nichelle Nichols. She was most famously uh, Lieutenant Uhura. In the original Star Trek series, but there's kind of a famous story about her that I wanted to relate in um, in 19. uh, The show ran from 1966 to 1969 and achieved cult status even back then. But after the 1966 season, she told the show's creator, Gene Roddenberry, that she was going to resign and return to New York because she wanted to make her career on Broadway. Mm. Um, He asked her to take a couple of days and think about it. And so that night, she happened to be invited to an NAACP fundraiser at a home in Beverly Hills. And the host said, oh, there's someone here who who says he's his biggest fan and he insists on meeting you. And so here's Martin Luther King Jr. saying how much he loved her on the show and the, the great work she was doing. And she said, oh, well, I just resigned today. And he said, no, you can't do that. Don't you realize the impact that you have on our community? He said, he said, we want all of Hollywood to treat us the way they're treating you. Wow. So he said, this show is much bigger than just you. You can't leave. And she went back to Gene Roddenberry the next day and she said she would stay. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. I love, even I love Star Trek when I was a kid. I would watch oh, it with my I dad. Loved it. Watch it with me. Of course. Just great. Of course, in reruns. Yeah, it was great. She was 89 years old. Along a good that's Seems right. like it's been it a, good a good life, life, a good long run, one to be celebrated and not, you know, not mourned too much. Right. That is right. Um, You want to hear something else? Pretty wild. Greenland shark. Are you a big fan of the Greenland shark? This huge, uh, yeah. incredibly old creatures. Yeah. Yeah. Guess yeah. where one was just found. Oh, no. Don't tell me like off the coast of New York or something. Belize. Oh, this off the is coast terrible. Of Belize, they couldn't believe their eyes. They reeled in a, a Greenland shark. They thought it was dead. Because its skin was black and its eyes are all pale and it's it doesn't look like any there. shark. That's Well, we don't know anything about these sharks, really. We don't even really know how long they live. It's just all oh my estimations goodness. and guesswork. So it could be that it is pretty common for Greenland sharks to hang out in these deep trenches off uh-huh. the reefs of, uh-huh. of Belize. And we've just never caught one before. 
So wow. they they caught this guy. Oh, I see the uh, picture of it. They didn't actually even try to tag it or measure it or do the stuff that they've been doing to other sharks because they were very afraid of accidentally killing it. Yeah. So they just took a picture. Um, I think they measured it and took a picture and then let it go and didn't didn't try to put any kind of tracking. It on says it. unlike the tiger sharks they were after, this one had black. Worn-looking skin and pale blue eyes. I mean, so would you if you were 500 years old. Seriously. All right, we got to leave it there, folks. I want to say thanks to all of our guests today and, as usual, to the producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>